0: Well hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and today we work out who will win the Queensland and US elections with Malcolm McHarris, the doyen of political analysts. And he ranks our best Prime Ministers from top to bottom. Who was our best? Was Bob Hawke better than John Howard? And is Scott Morrison rated higher than Paul Keating? I think Paul's going to like that one. Then we find out why Rod Sims and the ACCC has gone after iSelect and why it was forced to uh, basically pay a fine of $8.5 million. And then Maureen Jordan, the founder of Tilly, the website, the money website for, for women. She looks at heroic women who are great role models for other women. My next guest on the show is the famous Malcolm McHarris. Now, he he would laugh at me calling him the famous Malcolm McHarris, but particularly for Australians who are probably over 40 or 50, they know Malcolm McHarris as one of the most well-known political analysts this country has ever created or ever discovered. And we discover a, a, a political analyst every three years, when a, particularly when a federal election comes along, And I remember as a young man seeing Malcolm, as a young boy watching Malcolm McKerris on the ABC and other television stations, seen as the guru of political analysis. He, of course, writes on the Switzer Daily website and is often seen in the great newspapers of Australia. But I want to get get to know Malcolm, before I ask him about the Queensland election, I want to get to know Malcolm a little bit more, to to know his history and to position, position him for those Australians who aren't lucky enough to know the the history of Malcolm McHarris. Malcolm, thanks for coming on the show. Good afternoon. So, Malcolm, how did you get into political analysis?
1: Well, look, I would say I got into political analysis 70 years ago, right. by which I mean I was at that time – a schoolboy in primary school at St. Aloysius College, Milson's Point. But I had an elder brother, Neil, who was intensely interested in politics and who introduced me to politics so that I remember the year 1950. I don't remember the year 1949, however. 1949 was the year when Mendes came to office. But 1950 and 1951 were exceptionally interesting years and I just became extremely interested in all the things going on because Menzies didn't have a majority in the Senate, by which I mean he actually didn't have a majority. It wasn't like today. Mm. The Labour Party had a majority in the Senate and the Liberals and Country Party had a representative majority. So I followed these things very, very closely. And I followed the 1951 election very closely and the 1951 referendum very closely. And then ever since then, I've just uh, taken off and... Uh, Followed every federal state election, every by election, and overseas elections, beginning with the British election in 1951, etc. And I've really been in this game for 70 years, actually. Mm. Well, for 70 years in terms of my thinking of it, but for 60 years professionally.
0: So, how did you, I presume you would have studied political science at sydney university or someplace like that but how did you break into being recognized particularly by the media as a political analysis and expert
1: well i suppose well the way i'd put it is to say this in 1968 there was a massive redistribution of seats there hadn't been a redistribution of seats, really, between 1948 and 1968. So the boundaries were very, very, very unequal. There was a massive redistribution of seats. And I cottoned onto the idea that I could publish a book showing how you adjust all the statistics from the old maps to the new maps. And this took off very quickly. And with this book that i published on the 1968 federal redistribution... I then went to the ABC and sold myself to be an election night commentator. They took me on immediately, and I made a bit of a hit Mm. with the first couple of elections. Uh, Well, the first four elections, I'd say, actually. And then I got into this idea that the Australian politics really is a two-party system still, really. Labor on the one hand, Liberal Country Party on the other hand, and I then got into the idea of the pendulum, or rather the simple ranking of seats by percentage of the vote all the way from the safest Labour seat to the safest Liberal or Country Party seat in those days. Um, And that's where I got the idea of doing this pendulum. And I've been doing these electoral pendulums ever since, really, and uh, they became, well, they they were a hit in their day. Yeah.
0: And they're they're still used today, aren't they, Malcolm?
1: (laughs) Well, they are, but the only problem is, you see, Largely, as a result of my own work, electoral commissions in this country do all sorts of things for information purposes, Mm. which they would never have thought to do 50 years ago, except that I basically pioneered this idea that the electoral commission should count votes for information purposes. So the effect of that is that I now find, as often as not, that I produce a pendulum and I can't sell it to newspapers. In fact, the most recent example of that is this Queensland election. I I assumed that because Courier-Mail was willing to take my federal pendulum for the last two federal elections, they would take my Queensland pendulum, but they didn't. <laughs> so it's not published anywhere except on my website. So, you can so, see it on my website, but uh, very few people uh, would go to my website, probably no more than 50 at the very most, I uh, would
0: right. think. So, so Malcolm... The pendulum itself, do you have a trademark or a copyright on, on the pendulum? And and media outlets have paid you for it in the past?
1: In the past they have, yes, and still do in respect of some elections, the federal elections they still seem to run it. New South Wales and Victorian elections they still seem to run it, but I'm not all that confident that they will run to the future because I mean, I've noticed, for example, that the Australian which used to run my pendulums thought up a clever way of doing the same thing, in effect, they have what they call the Tower of Power. (laughs) It's really the same idea as my Mm. pendulum. Mm. Mind you, my my pendulum is much better than their Tower of Power, but the point is they can save themselves the money they would otherwise pay me for (laughs) a pendulum by simply getting all this information, which is all available, because electoral commissions simply make all this information available, Mm. and you don't have to express the thing in a pendulum form. Uh, That's what I do. I still maintain that's the best way to do it. But if newspapers don't want to pay me, they can, um, well, they can do it themselves. Now, I don't know how the Courier-Mail is doing this election. All I know is I offered my pendulum to them. I must admit, I tend to assume that they would take it. Mm. But then after I sent it to them, I sent it to them about three months ago, actually, They just said, well, no, we don't want it. (laughs) Uh, We're doing our own thing and there's nothing much I can do about it. Yeah.
0: But the the beauty of the pendulum, Malcolm, is that we use the word swing and the pendulum actually does show what kind of swing would lead to Mm. seats on one side going effectively to the other side, Labor to the coalition or vice versa.
1: That's correct, yeah. Yeah. Look, the way I do it is far better than the way the Australian or the Courier-Mail are doing it. Mm. But the fact is, they decide whether to commission me or not, and uh, I now find myself in the position that neither the Australian nor the Courier-Mail was interested in my Queensland pendulum. Mm. So it's still a beautiful piece of work, and I have it in front of me right now so that I can talk about the election with reference to it. But um, I can't compel people... I can't compel people to spend money uh, giving, given to me when their journalists can do the same kind of thing. Um, largely a result of, of the work of electoral commissions, which is largely a result of my influence over the last 50 years, I might add. Yeah.
0: Tell me this, Malcolm. But Mal-
1: that's the way it is.
0: Yeah. Malcolm, tell me this. Uh, you, but you've also been a lecturer in politics, haven't you, over this time?
1: Yes, I have been. Yes, I've been an academic. Mm. And um, I I decided to become an academic in the year 1974. And I've been an academic pretty well, pretty much ever since 1974, which means I've been an academic for nearly 50 years. But I've been in in this game really for 70 years, actually. It's Mm. just that I was a child when I began and I was a youthful observer, and then I sort of became a professional.
0: How do you rate Scott Morrison as a leader? You've seen lots of leaders. He clearly was um, having trouble at the beginning of the bushfire season, um, and a lot of people say he's uh, done very well during the coronavirus period. I think the news polls indicate he's Mm -hmm. very popular. But how do you think he's done as a leader compared against other leaders that you've seen in the past?
1: Well, look. I think the way I would put it is to say, until his term is ended, I'm not entirely sure where I would rank him. But my instinct would be to guess that I'll rank him about about tenth out of thirty four prime ministers. Rank a rank order. I'd rank him at about tenth mm. out of thirty four. I think it's thirty four. No, it might be thirty three. Um, I think I'd rank in about 10th, um, which means, in other words, I'd put him in the top third mm. of prime ministers. Yeah, Is- yeah, that's the way I think that's the way I put it. Uh, I think when he has finished his term, I'll decide that he belongs to the top third of prime ministers, mm. whereas somebody like uh, Kevin Rudd, for example, would belong to the top of the bottom third, I think I'd say. And somebody like Julie Gillard. I'd put in the middle the third, shall we say. If you divided the Prime Ministers in three, the, the top 11, let's say, the second 11 and the third 11, mm. I think I'd put Morrison just inside the top
0: 11. Mm. And and what about um, Tony Abbott?
1: I'd put him in the bottom category. You're very objective. Fairly, I'd put him fairly high up the bottom category, actually, mm. because... I mean, he did win an election, mm. and he won an election fairly convincingly. But you wouldn't say he was a successful Prime Minister, would you? I, I think you'd have to say he belongs to the bottom third. Mm. I think I'd say Turnbull belonged to the middle third.
0: What about Paul Keating? Keating was a, I always say Keating was a very good treasurer, but I, I don't rate him all that highly as a Prime Minister. No. But what do you think of him as a Prime Minister? Well,
1: I would put Keating slightly below Morrison. Mm. Not massively below, but slightly below Morrison. He'd
0: hate that. You know that.
1: Well, I know he would hate that, but... Um, <laughs> well, he would hate that, but... Yeah. Well, let, let, let me put it this way. Keating's greatness was as a treasurer rather mm. than as a prime minister. He wasn't a successful prime minister, really. Nope. His only success was that John Hewson simply gave him an election win which he wasn't expected to have. Mm. Now, of course, it can be said that Morrison was given an election win that he wasn't expected to have either. So my assumption that Morrison will finish up higher, more highly ranked than Keating is based upon the assumption that he will win another election. That uh, To be blunt about it, that's why... I mean, Keating only won, a, won an election, one election. He didn't stay very long in the job, whereas Morrison looks as though he might be in the job for quite a long time. Now, some, some people would say to me, you attach far too much importance to winning elections. Well, I would say, well, in a democracy, you should. Mm, absolutely. So I think I'd put Keating just a little bit below Morrison.
0: Okay. So I'm going to ask you this question. I never intended to do this, Malcolm, but I, I know what my listeners would love you to comment on. Who were our top three Prime Ministers. Well I'll tell you the top ten if you like. <laughs> yeah, top ten just, as top three well, is very hard, I guess. But give us give us
1: but, but, but from top to bottom it, I want. Okay, well look, I'll just get out the little chart that you people did for me. Well this was all published on the Spitzer in the Switzer website, but I'll tell you the way I rank hmm. them. I put Bob Menzies first.
0: Yeah, I thought you'd say that.
1: Now people say why? And I say, well, he won one hell of a lot of elections, mm-hmm. and um, he was in the office for one hell of a long time, and the country was doing really very, very well while he was Prime Minister. So I think in a democracy, it's quite reasonable to say that the Prime Minister, who was there the longest and won the most elections, should be at top. So I put him first. Yep. Then I put John Curtin, Labour, second. He was a very successful wartime prime minister in the Second World War. Mm. Then I put Alfred Deacon third. Now, he was a very successful early prime minister. I put Andrew Fisher fourth. He was Labour, and he was an early prime minister. Then I put Bob Hawke. Yeah. Then I put Billy Hughes. Now, he was not as successful as Curtin, but he was the prime minister in the First World War. Then I put John Howard, then I put Joe Lyons. Now, that's the point where I think I might finish up putting yep. Morrison. Mm-hmm. Morrison, in fact, well I mean, once again, people say, well you rate, you rate winning elections too highly, and well, all I can say is in the case of Joe Lyons, the country was in a deep depression when he became prime minister, He did drag the country out of depression. Not very quickly, I might add, but still he did. And he won three elections. So he died in office. So that's where I put him. So then I would put Chifley, Ben Chifley, Labor Prime Minister. Then I put Stanley Bruce, who was the Prime Minister of the 1920s. And then I would put Paul Keating. But I put Morrison somewhere in that group. But the truth is, until I actually know the full career of Morrison, I'm not quite sure that I would.
0: Okay, there's no
1: Malcolm.
0: There's only one thing I think that's controversial there, and that is Howard being so low, given the the number of elections he's won. So, why have you got a a negative on Howard? Well,
1: I put him. I put him seventh.
0: Hmm. The seventh, uh, but Billy Hughes didn't win as many elections as Howard, did he?
1: He was a very successful wartime prime minister in the First World War. Hmm. And being a prime minister in war, just, I think, gives you higher marks than in peace. Okay. Because in peacetime, it is easier to govern than in wartime. Hmm. That is my value judgment. But do you, th- so, um, do you think
0: on that on that criteria, Morrison may will get an elevation because this is like a war. This this pandemic is an extraordinary challenge for a for a politician and a
1: government. Well, that's right. Uh, I mean, yeah. Well, but once again, the trouble is I can't really comment until I until I know the rest of his career. Yes. The same as, the same as with Gladys Berejiklian, I might add. Mm, mm. In the case of Gladys Berejiklian she might finish up as one of the greatest premiers of New South Wales but on the other hand um, I can't say that yet can I?
0: No, there certainly are a few challenges which none of us thought she'd ever have to face but it's the problem um, But she's um, doing very well as premier She she? that's right It's, It's a problem when Really successful women go out with silly men, but that's that's another issue again. All right, yeah. let's get to Queensland now because this is another um, pretty feisty female premier who's staring down a lot of opponents and whatever. So, Malcolm, what's yeah. your what's your a view on the election first, and then we'll get to Anastasia Palaszczuk after that. How do you think it's going to play out? Because a lot of Sydney siders can't believe that the Queenslanders like their state being closed. But I keep hearing a lot of Queenslanders are quite happy to have their state closed. What do you think is going to happen?
1: I agree with you. I think the Queenslanders are quite happy to have the state closed. But perhaps they're not quite as happy as the Western Australians are.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's true.
1: I mean, the point is, a lot of tourism in Queensland depends upon southerners. I mean, a lot of Southerners go to Queensland resorts and not New South Wales resorts. I mean, there are some resorts on the north coast of New South Wales that are every bit as good as the ones further up the coast. But in practice, the resorts in the Whitsundays, for example, are much more popular than, for example, in the north coast of New South Wales. So Mm. I'd say I can quite understand why closing the borders would make a Premier popular in that circumstance.
0: Okay, so tell us how you think this election will pan out.
1: Look, I haven't yet made a prediction on this election. <laughs> it's the only election this year, I, in respect of which I have not yet made a prediction. Mm. But I think I'd say this. I think there is a 70% probability that Anastasia Palaszczuk will still be Premier after the election is over. I think that's the way I'd put it. Mm. The The election last time was quite close, and there are lots of marginal seats. And I'm pretty unsure about quite a few of these marginal seats, but looking at it closely, while I don't have a very good knowledge of the local circumstances, I think I'd say there's a 70% probability that Anastasia Palaszczuk will still be Premier. The only question then then I need to answer for myself, as this, will the result be that she is premier because the Greens uh, plus Labor give her the majority, or will she still be premier because the Labor Party itself has a majority? Mm. That's the, that's the question that it in my mind. Because the Greens, I think, there's not the slightest doubt the Greens will win the seat of South Brisbane. So that would give the Greens two certain seats, South Brisbane and Maywar, which is their current seat. And they're also quite lucky to win the seat of McConnell from Labour. So I suppose I'd say I suppose I'd say that the single most likely result is that Labour will just have a majority in its own right. Right. And the second most likely is that Labour will have a majority when you add the Greens members to the Labour members. That would give a majority. And the third most likely result is that there will be a minority government from the Liberal National Party because I think the Liberal National Party, if it can finish up with more seats than Labour, would easily be able to govern in a minority government because the Qatar Party of three members And the One Nation Party of One and the Independent in the seat of NUSA, which is normally a safe Liberal seat, um, would make a Liberal National Party minority government entirely viable. So perhaps I'd say there's a 30% chance of that and a 70% chance that Anastasia Palaszczuk in one form or another would stay on as Premier.
0: Okay. So what do you think of Palaszczuk as a Premier? Will she be up there in the, the pantheon of, of great state Premiers?
1: No, she's not. No. Oh, how would I put her? Where would I put her? It's rather difficult to say. Um, but no, she, she's not particularly distinguished. I'm not aware of anything that she's done that's unusual.
0: Can you well, think of anything she's well, done that's unusual? Apart from keeping the borders shut, I guess Mark McGowan's well, copied her. Well, but that's
1: unusual. I mean, that's what, that's what, well, I mean, that, that, that is an unusual circumstance given to her, mm. which resulted in her copying other states in keeping the borders shut. I mean, mm. I think Tasmania was actually the first to shut the borders, followed by Western Australia, followed by Queensland. And uh, South Australia shut the borders. And we finished up with only the New South Wales and ACT pair of jurisdictions not shutting borders. In fact, even New South Wales shut the borders in a way because people in the ACT were not allowed to travel from Victoria to back to Canberra. There was a period when that was the case. But I can't actually think of any particular achievement of Anastasia Palaszczuk other than becoming Premier, winning an unlikely election and then having another victory which was not particularly a distinguished victory, hmm. but relying as much on the weakness of the Liberal National Party as anything else. So, All
0: right. Well, now yeah. let's go to the last controversial question. Donald Trump, can he yeah. win the US election?
1: No. No, he can't win it. He's not competitive. Um, No, he can't win it because, well, the laws of electoral history are against him and all the polls are against him. And the way the year has developed has confirmed what I expected, namely that we would look back on this year and say that Donald Trump was the Republican Party equivalent of Jimmy Carter Now, Jimmy Carter was a Democratic Party president, and he served one term only, so there was a one-term Democratic administration under Carter. Now, in his last year, there was an appearance that he was competitive, but when it came to the point he was not competitive, he was defeated decisively. Now, all the same sort of circumstances apply to Trump. Um... He appeared to be competitive for the first three months of this year. Now, mind you, other people think he's still competitive. I mean, there are people who still think he's still competitive, but Mm. well, I don't think so. I I just think that he appeared to be competitive in the months of January, February, and March. But once April arrived, I had no trouble writing an article on the Switzer website predicting a landslide win for Biden. Now, I predicted that on your website in, back in April. And I've continued to say that. But the main thing I'd say is that the polls at the time did not particularly support my prediction. And the betting odds certainly didn't support my prediction, you may remember. You may remember when I made that bold prediction, the betting odds were quite solidly favoring Trump. But as the years go on, as each month goes by, The polls come more and more into alignment with what I've said for several months, and the betting odds now favour Biden. So with only three weeks to go, and with the the movement basically month by month going against Trump, and with him losing debates unnecessarily, cancelling a debate unnecessarily, alienating all sorts of people, Quite unnecessarily, handling the coronavirus pandemic very, very badly—about as badly as you could ask for. I, I I can't see any reason why I wouldn't predict a landslide win for Biden. And in fact, in today's Canberra Times, there was an article by me predicting a landslide win to Biden. So. If you like to look at the Canberra Times today, you'll see my reasoning, but then you already know my reasoning because I put it on the Twitter website back in April. <laughs> you sure did.
0: Well, but one last question then. People would say, but Trump was written off in his battle with Hillary Clinton. Is yes. is that is this the same kind of situation or is there so many differences that it doesn't make w- worthwhile comparing?
1: Well, I would say the situation is very different now because... Hillary Clinton was personally unpopular. Biden may be thought to be weak, but he's not personally unpopular. Um, Also, back in 2016, there was an unexpectedness relating to Trump's win. I think a lot of people in states like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania voted for Trump having no expectation that they were actually voting for the winner. Whereas he's now the president, because he is the incumbent, he he owns the swamp. He owns the swamp. Mm. He can't credibly say drain the swamp because he owns the swamp mm. now. Yeah. Now th- four years ago he could say drain the swamp because he didn't actually own the swamp at that time. But um, that's why I do. I don't think he is competitive. I really don't. And I have not. I have thought this for about four or five months, and I believe when the numbers go up, well, the prediction I'm making is the electoral vote will be 350 for Biden and 188 for Trump. But if that is wrong, I think it's more likely to be wrong by understating the Biden number because my 188 for Trump includes Texas and Ohio, for example. I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised if Ohio went to Biden. Wouldn't be in the least bit surprised. And I wouldn't be particularly surprised if Texas went to Biden. I'm not predicting it. Mm. I still think uh, Trump will will retain Texas. But at the last election, there was a substantial swing in favour of Hillary Clinton in, in Texas. Yeah. So mm. I think um, so look, it, it'll be a landslide. And The effect of it being a landslide will be that people will stop talking about everything that's wrong with the system. I mean, at the last election, when Trump got 63 million and Clinton got 66 million votes, people would say, that's a travesty of democracy, wouldn't they? Mm. And then there are all these arguments about what happens if there's a death and this sort of thing. Well, I think you'll find that when the numbers are known, which they will be in three and a bit weeks it will be a decisive win for Biden and everybody will say well the system worked fine the system worked fine the majority of voters voted for Biden the majority of the elector college thing voted for Biden and it didn't make any difference that the system was one of an electoral college um, and I think you'll find that everybody will say the whole thing American democracy worked very well That's what that's what I predict and they'll say all this sc- scaremongering about postal voting and all that sort of thing was just Trump's way of explaining away his failure because he is a failure in my view. In fact, I'm going to do for you after he's defeated a, a table rather like my Prime Minister's table that I did when from which I've been talking just during mm-hmm. this conversation. I am trying to work out where does Trump come? Well, I would say I would say history will record him as the fourth most failed president.
0: Well, Malcolm, I think you've given us a fantastic political lesson and a lot of young people who listen to this will have learnt a lot because of your long history of uh, watching politics here in Australia and abroad. Thanks for joining us on the program.
1: Okay, thank you, Peter.
0: Well, it's ad time, and this time... The Switzer Financial Group is pleased to bring you the virtual Switzer Investor Strategy Day. Now, it's on Tuesday the 20th and Wednesday the 21st of October, so it's coming up soon. Held virtually via Zoom and hosted by myself. The two-day conference will give investors access and insight from some of Australia's best investors and fund managers. You'll have an opportunity to hear from these top fund managers to understand how they are investing right now in these unprecedented times. The day will deliver information through idea-driven and educational sessions from the fund managers who share insights on how they are investing right now and what their thoughts are about the future. These sessions will be followed by a roundtable panel discussion. The audience will also have an opportunity to ask questions via Zoom to get a deeper understanding of how these experts are investing. I'm also very pleased to announce that we will also be joined on the day by the Treasurer of Australia, the Honourable Josh Frydenberg. He'll be sharing his plans and insights into how he's going to lead us out of this recession. It's going to be a great day, and I hope you can join us. It's Tuesday the 20th and Wednesday the 21st of October. So actually, there are two great days. Go to eventbrite.com.au and type in Switzer Investor Strategy Day to secure your tickets. One more time, go to EventBright, one word, a u and type in Switzer Investor Strategy Day to secure your tickets. Well, joining me now on the program is Rod Sims, who's the chair of the ACCC. And the federal court has ordered iSelect to pay $8.5 million in penalties for making false or misleading representations about its electricity comparison service. Now, iSelect admitted to that between November 2016 and December 2018 that it misled consumers by representing on its website that it would compare All Electricity Plans. So, Rod, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you. Well, tell us, how rampant do you think this kind of issue is in these comparator websites?
2: Look, I think it's fairly widespread. The the, the problem is I think often people get onto websites and think, isn't this terrific? And they forget that the company providing the website needs to make money. And if they're providing the service to you for free, Then you can be absolutely sure they're getting money off the retailers they're comparing. Uh, And so what happens is they only compare some sites. uh, And the problem with iSelect was that they weren't comparing all plans. And indeed, you could often get a better price if you contacted the retailer direct. So the retailer wasn't giving them their best plans. In the case of Travago, they were ranking the hotels in part influenced by how much the the hotel paid them. So I just think you've got to watch out for the fact that people have got to earn money somehow and that can often be to your disadvantage, I'm afraid.
0: Mm. So is the bottom line that these comparison websites still can be useful but you just can't trust them that they've done everything that you would expect them to do if they were the most honest operators in the world?
2: That's exactly right, because they've got to make money. You're not their, I mean, you're not their client. Mm. Uh, the client is the people paying the money. Uh, you're just the user of their site. Uh, so, but, but you're right that, that they do provide a valuable service. I mean, a, a, my view is that if you want to get the best deal, be it health insurance, energy, whatever, accommodation, it's worth trying a few places. If you can take the time to go to one, go to a couple uh, and just just see whether you're getting similar results. And then the other thing you can do is actually just ring up the energy company or the hotel and just see whether you can get an even better deal mm. because certainly with accommodation providers and with energy providers, you'll often get the best deal by talking to them directly.
0: Rod, what was the reaction from iSelect and Travago when you guys – you, know, you just accuse them of not not really doing what they were promising
2: well i select to be fair did reasonably quickly acknowledge uh, that and they uh, the judgment we got against them was one that they you know consented to so they realized the problem and they didn't fight it in court we went along and agreed travago did fight it in court and i think they still uh Uh, probably uh, aren't comfortable with the action we've taken. Um, But I still think, I mean, we think we got that one pretty right, that there's certainly times when you go on Travago and the hotel most recommended to you is one paying them the biggest commission. Mm. So, look, different companies adopt different approaches.
0: Rod, when you guys worked out that this was going on, uh, were you, did you pick it up on, on it early or, or, or was it a, something that came when people started to complain to you? And, and then you then contacted the company to see how they reacted to your you know, observations?
2: Well, the tricky thing with misleading behaviour is consumers often don't know they're being misled. Mm-hmm. So in the case of uh, – it's interesting. In the case of iSelect, we found that ourselves through research. We were doing – for another purpose and so we realized they weren't showing all the plans and we compared it with the government-owned website energy made easy and we could quickly see they weren't showing all the plans Mm. with trivago it was complaints from hotels that weren't winning the ranking Mm. saying how you know hang on how can this be uh that got us onto it and often the competitors who are losing out are a really good source of advice for us So consumers not so, usually, because they don't know they're being misled. Mm.
0: In a perfect world, and I know you haven't got a perfect world because you haven't got unlimited funding, but in a perfect world, what needs to be done to regulate these kinds of sites, which ultimately, as you pointed out, are driven by sales?
2: Yeah, look, I think that, well, in our um, retail electricity pricing inquiry, we recommended a mandatory code of conduct which would require – clear explanation by the companies on what their commercial arrangements are so that everybody would know upfront how they're getting paid and that they would make comparisons like for like, not apples with oranges. So we still think that's a good idea to have. Uh, I mean, often people don't like a bit of regulation, but I think when you've got the internet spawning all these sorts of businesses, I think a bit of regulation is appropriate.
0: Tell us about the, for, for those people who've never come across it before, the Energy Made Easy website, which you referred to earlier. It, obviously, obviously, you haven't taken them to court, so they must be doing the right job.
2: Uh, well, they're government. Yeah. They're, they're set up by the yeah. Australian Energy Regulator, funded by the Commonwealth Government, and they compare all the plans. And so that's a good example of the government actually providing you with a comparison website. Uh, That's done for energy, but, you know, arguably you could do it for a whole range of other uh, services. So it's a really good uh, website. Uh, I'd urge everyone listening, if you wanted to get the best electricity plan, you've got a government-owned entity doing their best to give you access to all plans. I think it's worth a visit.
0: Mm. Well, I've come across something in recent times, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I am going to put you on the spot, and you can you can wriggle your way out of this one if you, if you if you need to because you're not across it. But I've noticed some of the some of the websites nowadays are, are doing basically just like a, a little summary of a stock, and then have a like click here if you want to buy, and it just seems to me that you know like. As someone who actually has an investment newsletter and subscribers and all that sort of stuff, we go to a, a hell of a lot to try and provide as much information, but we then then don't say, okay, we've we've talked about zip or afterpay or whatever. Now click on here and go to Comsec on Trade and buy buy the stock. It, it it seems to me that that potentially could be a a very risky thing for the inexperienced consumer. H- have these new kinds of products? been um, put on on notice for for you guys?
2: Uh, Look, in a general sense only, Mm -hmm. in the sense that, again, you've got a whole range of players out on the internet trying to make money in all sorts of different ways Mm -hmm. and often doing that in ways that, you know, cross-boundaries they shouldn't really cross. Certainly when they're giving consumers one impression But there's conflicts of interest, uh, uh, preferencing to one organisation or one stock or one broking house over another. Mm. Uh, It it is there's more of it going on than we can deal with, Peter. But uh, I just, you know, I think with people listening to this, uh, really good idea to be very careful. Just as when you go into a bricks and mortar store, you're careful, you're sceptical. I think doing that online is probably even more necessary.
0: Yeah, yeah. It just, I just thought. To me, it looked like the tip of the iceberg that could get worse and worse if if one group sees yes. someone doing it. And as I say, I, I'm I am in the business of actually exposing good or bad companies, but we don't go to the next step and, and try and get a clip of the ticket because yes, people then. Takes the advice and, and does a trade. I thought that was a, a really interesting development, which could be exploited uh, pretty poorly in the future. And I think there's one one other little area that I thought that you guys you know might be interested in, and that is the the idea that um, those interest rate comparison websites uh, and the and the averseness that we see that often pushes the advertised rate, but not the comparison rate. Now, the comparison rate issue has been around longer than you've probably been alive, Rod. uh, But do you think consumers really understand the comparison rate issue?
2: I honestly don't know the answer to that. Mm. This is very much an ASIC and APRA issue when it comes to financial matters. We're the consumer regulator for everything but the financial sector. Mm. Uh, So I think, look, you can never do too much explaining of these things. I think the comparison rate is a great idea. Mm, so uh, the, the most expensive thing you do as an individual is buy a home. You, you know that the longer your loan is, I mean, the, longest, the longer the time between when you took out the loan, uh, the more interest you're going to pay, right? So it is absolutely worthwhile. Ringing up your bank every now and again, ringing up another bank and seeing whether you can get a get a better deal, and you'll save so much money. So I, I think those comparison sites are that, that comparison rate is really important. Um, whether people understand it or not, I suspect I suspect they don't. Mm. Uh, I think the big advice for people is if you haven't contacted your bank to get a better interest rate in the last couple of years, then call them up. You can save yourself real money, particularly for anyone who's got any sizeable mortgage at all.
0: Rod Sims, thanks for joining us on
2: the program. Thank you very much.
3: Hey, Peter. Hi, Claire. (laughs) Did you know that women retire with 47% less superannuation than men?
0: Yeah, I did, Claire, because for something like 30 years, I've been trying to get women to be real, and men, to be really educated about their super, and I think it's been terrible to think that women's superannuation is so low.
3: Exactly. But did you also know that one in two women see investment industry communications as being complicated, a large number feel intimidated, and about one in five find them tailored to men?
0: Yeah. I haven't seen that that data, mm. um, but I'm not surprised. I think a lot of men get intimidated by by money and super and all that sort of stuff. But one thing I have learned over the years is that when women get really interested, they're better at managing money than men.
3: Exactly. <laughs> oh, I see
0: how quickly he came in on that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we're aiming to do with Tilly Money. Yep. So Tilly Money is a place to come and learn about money, how to understand it, harness it, and importantly, how to grow it. So we're trying to help women achieve their financial independence by removing any disparity in the accessibility of financial knowledge. So, Peter, visit Tillymoney.com.au where you can read our articles, sign up to the newsletter or listen to the podcast.
0: Isn't it amazing that for someone like me, who my whole life I've been inspired by my wife, Maureen Jordan, Mm. um, that she's come up with an idea like Tilly?
3: Who would have thought? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Okay, this is our monthly catch-up with Maureen Jordan, who's the founder of Tilly. Maureen, for people who don't know, what is Tilly?
4: Tilly money. And by the way, Peter, it's nice to see you. Um month has flown past. Yes, yeah. amazing, yeah. isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Good to be with you, Pete. Yeah. Um, Tilly. Tilly is a website that we launched. It'll be far more than a website as time goes on. Mm. A website that we launched um, during COVID, um, even though the idea of it's been hatching for some time, because we saw a gap about knowledge, about financial and business knowledge. And, you know, you've got financial literacy programs and what, whatever, but the gap was about really teaching people about money. And we also saw that there's a wealth gap with women. And so I wanted to focus on teaching women about money.
0: Yeah. But some sometimes your stories, and the stories I'm going to talk to you about today, sometimes they... they Pivot away from money, and it seems to me you have this um, enduring belief that you want to help change the attitude of women because you believe attitude determines altitude.
4: Oh yes, so that's a first. Is that your quote, or did you? I steal made that it up. I just made it up. I was yeah, just, I was yeah, just yeah, thinking. Yeah. What, a, what a great way of putting it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You didn't steal that one from me, but no. I'm sure you stole it from somebody. But changing the attitude, yes, because attitude towards money by both men and women probably hasn't what isn't what it should be people are very blasé about it you know they're living from paycheck to paycheck but what stands out for women in particular is that historically they haven't had as much super as men historically um There's a big, big trend. Even someone was saying to me yesterday, maybe it's something we can talk about later at a funeral that I was at of a woman um, who I hold in great regard that there's so many women over 55 who are homeless Mm. and so well below the poverty line. And we're not talking women who have always been on the edge. Mm. You know, we're talking about women who perhaps rely too much on, in many cases, their husband. They put over too much of the responsibility about money to the husband. Unfortunately, the husband comes along and does what they call, you know, awfully call a trade-in and the woman's left Mm. and uh, doesn't have the super, maybe gets a bit of money through, you know, the divorce situation, potentially blows it and then they're left up in a mess.
0: And, of course, that is the kind of the link that you, you see that if people, if, say, women as a group... Need to take more control of their life and their money life. You have a role in helping them be better at managing money. And I've I've had relatives in my life who were in exactly the same situation you're talking mm-hmm. about. Um, had money, uh, a, a, a husband passed away, and the money then was mismanaged because. You know, the woman in question just wasn't able to do it. So you have a like a, a, a crusade that mm-hmm. you really want to try and lift the education standards of women both on the developing of understanding money but be also improving their, their life, their success in, in business or in employment. All that sort of stuff is in a mix, do you think, yeah, don't you? Yeah, a
4: tick to all the above. Hmm. See, you can't teach old dogs new tricks you know, people form people form habits and patterns mm. with money. And even though those women over 55, they certainly need some kind of support system, you know, um, to help them because no one should be living on the streets. No person should be begging. You know, I'd like to see in my idealistic way all of that. but But somebody who hasn't got money purely because they haven't understood what money's all about and how important it is from a young age we can help that you know we can we can help people who are younger form patterns and accumulate money over time but if you hit 60 and you haven't got very much you are going to be beholden to family and live off the government you know you haven't got much choice there Mm. but a younger stage independence and education about money and we keep driving this gives you choices
0: now, I believe that um, on Tilly, you've included a a brilliant brilliantly written article by me.
4: Oh, have I? No, yeah. Go yeah. on. No, I just say. And
0: for, and for people who who don't know, I did this, a weekend Switzer story on the passing of two women who I think are complete heroes. One was Helen Reddy um, and another one was a, a lady by the name of Hilda Mitchell who, you know was a a friend of ours, Um, she became a financial planning client of ours, Uh, but she was such a remarkable, old-fashioned Australian woman, and um, you and I, we actually watched that film on Helen Reddy called I Am Woman, and we realised how we didn't probably appreciate what her achievements were in moment.
4: Oh, totally. Well, Helen Helen Reddy was um, a generation older than us, Mm. and even though you know, through the 70s, you know, I certainly as a female, you know, saw a lot of change. Mm. Um, You know, Gough Whitlam brought in um, equal pay for women, you know, free education universities, you know, they were big changes for women. And I was definitely a beneficiary of those times. But Helen Reddy um, was older, and I really didn't know how important she was in even helping women like me through the 70s and the 80s you know she was so ahead of her time i mean that movie i am woman that you enjoyed every bit as much as i did yeah. what an amazing person what a tough life she also had in many ways mm. but and how we as australians underrated her success i mean as you said she had a host show in america yeah. that's no mean feat yeah. i mean she sure. was an ellen degeneres of you know the 60s and Mm. and 70s and Mm. what an accomplished person and that's that song i am woman the fact that that's gone on decade after decade and become like a national and or international anthem for women i mean it was staggering so when we watched that show i got tingles you know i didn't realize how many incredible songs you know i don't know how to love him which became um the theme song for jesus christ superstar i mean Mm. Because she was older, I would sing along, but I didn't really understand the history of it. Mm. And I love that movie. I'd recommend it to anybody to watch it. And then you penned a great article in Weekend Switzer, and part of it was about Helen Reddy herself. And then the other part, as you just mentioned, was about this wonderful woman who certainly didn't shoot to the stardom that Helen Reddy did, but is a star. You Mm. know, Helen... um, Hilda Mitchell, and um, what an amazing lady! Um, a single mother, you know, raised a daughter, totally focused on educating and loving, you know, the girl that she'd brought into um, put her into through life. A,
0: a top a top class private school in Sydney while she worked f- worked three four, jobs three, three jobs. jobs. Yeah, it was, her main job was a bus conductor yeah. or a tram conductor, but she worked at nights and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, she was collecting
4: a- money at parking stations, you know, selling, you know, chocolates and that in theatres. I mean, all she was doing, she was living to give her daughter, I mean, they called her Speedy. At her funeral, Hilda passed away recently, which, you know, brings a lump into my throat, but at her funeral they were talking, they called her Speedy, and the reason she was so Speedy, she had to run everywhere <laughs> from job to job, you know, and... I want to talk about her for a while and I want to talk about a couple of other people to you you know part of the story but to even repeat it and tell stories on Tilly money because these are such gutsy women and I, I I looked at Hilda as you said in the article she never whinge no. you know she never she never complained she mm. never put a hand out for anyone to help her mm. she just worked and then she saw a couple of ta- houses in Paddington. The first one she bought, you know, it was run down. It was probably, as Paddington was at the time, yeah. not a desirable location. It was
0: like an urban slum in those days, yeah. yeah.
4: And she bought it and then she saved and she bought another one. And then, you know, by the grace of the property god, these yeah. places. Um, yeah, these, ple- cycle. Yeah, these, these places. She ended up with a lot of money. But she didn't – you know what I loved about Hilda was that she – sought out help in the financial space.
0: After being ripped off by a financial planner. Well,
4: she did go to a financial planner in the country and we saw that. That was just absolutely disgraceful. And a lawyer, again, absolutely disgraceful. I mean, you know, I was taught by nuns and they used to teach us that stealing is wrong, but when you steal from someone like a nun or someone who doesn't <laughs> have money, it's a, it's a double sin. It's a double sin. And so to, to take money and to rob off someone like Hilda, you know, that's a that's a triple mortal sin for yeah, me. but. Yeah. But Hilda, I just admired her so much because she loved you. She absolutely adored you. We know that. She had very good taste. Very good taste. And she came to you because she used to watch you on TV or listen to you on the radio, and she wanted to get proper financial advice after having had horrendous experience. And then she was so smart. Not only did she want a financial advice and was prepared to pay for it, and so we looked after her for years, But she then at the same time said, I want to make sure my daughter's looked after. And she said, and she was about when she first came to us in her early 80s, Mm. and she had a fair bit of dough. And she said, I all threw off her own hard work. She said, I want to make sure my daughter's looked after. So therefore, I need to have a proper will. I want to make sure that I've got... A power of attorney in place mm. and i want to have you know a proper executor yeah. and initially i think she wanted you but you know being me being a solicitor and you know i like detail you kind of said well i do know the person who you should have and so i became he i got hilda's enduring power of attorney and i'm executive of her will now with the power of attorney um Hilda passed away, Uh, Hilda, sorry, prior to passing away, about six or seven years ago, Hilda started losing capacity, you know, so she was starting to get dementia. Mm. And so that's when this thing called an enduring power of attorney swings into action. Fortunately, we have grown close anyway over those years. Jeanette and I, her daughter and I, have grown very close, Mm. you know, Jeanette's has learned to trust me and I was working for Hilda. Mm. You and I managed to get Hilda into a very comfortable retirement home. She had, you know, the money to do that Mm. and we actually managed to give her and Jeanette real dignity in those five and six years of her life. Mm. Um, When she passed away, not through COVID but 95 through old age, You know, I felt the loss intensely. I know you were affected. And I've supported Jeanette um, all the way through it. You know, we were at the funeral together. But even at the funeral, Peter, I just kept looking at this, you know, woman, beautiful white coffin strewn with red roses that Jeanette selected. And I just thought, you're a champion, Hilda. Mm -hmm. You know, she had everything It was a great way...
0: To leave a life that's worth celebrating. Oh,
4: Unbelievably beautiful life. You know, that the words that were said at the funeral express this strong, capable, financially independent woman. I admire people like that.
0: A great role model for every young woman out there.
4: A terrific role model. See, the reason that I'm stressing Hilda so much is that a lot of the podcasts that we've done to date and the stories that we've told in Tilly Money... They're beautiful stories of success, but a lot of them—and I take my hat off, you know—and I think it's great that women that we've interviewed—they've said, "I came from very good parents. Mm. I went to university. Great role models. Great role models. Mm. You know, mum and dad both set me up. They did this." But when I look at Hilda, she left school when she was thirteen. She worked three jobs. She bought property. You know, she She went and got advice. Yeah, Mm. she had some bum of a husband or quasi-husband. Nothing stopped that woman. You know, it was not, oh, woe is me, or not, oh, the government has to look after me, or you have to pay my bills. To the very end, Hilda was independent, to the point that we, Jeanette and I, even years ago, went shopping because Hilda, before she completely lost capacity, said, I want my funeral paid for. And I want a burial plot, and I want to be buried in Waverly Cemetery, and I want a view of the ocean. Mm. And at the funeral on <laughs> um, the other day, Jeanette and I looked at each other, and she said, "Maureen, she got what she wanted." Uh. And that to me, that story, it just <clears throat> it just rings so much stronger to me, and, and than any story that I've known because she did it her way. To yeah. quote Frank Sinatra, mm. you know that. She was, as Helen Reddy said, "I am woman, and I'm going to look after myself." Let and me, she did it.
0: Let me draw out the, the, the big lessons. That, yeah, and you've emphasised it that Hilda was a a hard worker. Mm. B, she had a plan, you know, she had the vision, even the plan around her own funeral and all that stuff. She had a plan that she realized her daughter was a capable girl, but wasn't experienced in money. So she went looking for someone, yeah. an expert to help her, make sure that what she wanted for her daughter would would come true. You've now become a good working um, a partner, uh, of her daughter, and so she could die peacefully, knowing that. Oh yes, you know,
4: knowing that Jeanette would be looked after yeah, because right. that's what drove her yeah. you know yeah. all the time.
0: So, in many ways, what Hilda de- demonstrates for everybody out there that you know, you work out your strengths and your weaknesses. You, if you, if you are weak, try and find people who will help you be strong, and have a plan, have a goal, and if you have a goal and you you go the right way about making it, you know, co- come to uh, fruition. You can be really happy with the results.
4: Oh, without a doubt. You know, and sp- probably I have an extra affection for Hilda too because she reminds me of another gutsy woman, your grandmother. Mm. You know, your yeah. grandmother was Similar everything style. to me that was, you know, determined, driven, you know, didn't expect, you know, other people to look after her. It was just like, you know, how much I adored her. Yeah. She was something that, that, well, she reminded me of my mum, you know. She was just, and there are women out there. Yeah. But I want to tell you Old-fashioned
0: Aussie stock. Oh, I
4: love it. Yeah. I love it. And it's, it's got to be new-fashioned as mm-hmm. well because yeah. there's another Story I quickly want to tell you and this was something that came out at the funeral yesterday and two women in particular I won't mention their names but I want to tell these stories on Tilly because mm. these are stories of hope and aspiration because you might be listening to Tilly or you might think oh that's all very well they had a university education they had a great life they went to a private school well I've just told the story of uh, Hilda um, there was another woman I spoke to and Seriously, Peter, this woman, 13, you know, abused by a stepfather, ended up, ran away from home, in homes, you know, terrible situation in homes. I don't even want to go there and explain what happened to her. And she since has won a case, you know, um, with the government because of the, abuse, the mm. abuse that she had. What she said was, I got the compensation. All I really wanted was the apology. Mm. But this girl, she married, He domestic violence, you know, She was on the streets of King's Cross. If you looked at this person, her face is absolutely beautiful. Mm. You know, she's close to 70. Mm. You know, she way doesn't look it. Mm. You know, her face does not, they say the tracks of, you know, of Mm. the years are on your face. Well, not on hers. But tats all Mm. down both arms. Um, But an amazingly accomplished woman, she now has a house um, in a beautiful beach area. She's got a, a, a property in a beautiful inner-city suburb, a flat in inner-city suburb of Sydney. She's got an interest in the share market. I said to her... But
0: two businesses as well, isn't she? She's
4: had two businesses, mm. but, you know, she's mm. totally involved in helping other people now because she knows that, you know, they're but for the grace of, you know, mm. go I. and she, But she pulled herself up out of the streets of King's Cross mm. and... I could not believe her story. Um, I listened totally, and I want to tell stories like that because Tilly doesn't say that if you've got, as quote quote quote, quote your mm. grandmother's the, them that's got remember, she said, yeah. them that's got git. Yeah, yeah. but she didn't have anything. And mm. when I said to her, What's something looking back on your life that you really would have liked to have had?' And she said, oh, probably I could have changed a lot of you know the violence if I had have been had an education. And she said, if I only had been able to go to university and learn more about very what, very not, to get crowds, in, what yeah. not to get into in life. Yeah. And she said, that's the thing I regret most of all. But I want to tell stories like this. Another story of a woman, again, you know, um, this woman tall like you, you know, and strong and not glamorous in the least. But, mm. you know, she came up and she put her arm around me and gave me a big hug and thanked me for what I'd done for Hilda because she loved Hilda. And then I said to her, where do you live? And she told me she'd bought a property in pretty rough area in New South Wales because her mum had left her a bit of money and she wanted a house. And now she said, I'm independent, mm. you know, and she said, I've got a house. She said, I, I raise chickens, I sell the eggs, the organic eggs. I go down to the, you know, men's shed and I I get them to make me things and I pay them, you know, the required money, but I make them, you know, meals and morning teas. And she said, "And no, I love life. And when she told me a story, it was similar to that story of struggle, 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 but somewhere the grit, the true grit within her raised to the surface and she's doing so well. They're
0: inspirational stories, but Mm. they're also educational stories for young women to to realise that if they make bad choices when they're young, they might have to go through a period of terrible suffering before they either collapse and go nowhere or rise out of the – like a phoenix out of the ashes – I think Tilly's going to be a fantastic um, guideline to stop people from suffering those kinds of problems.
4: That's right, and that's what we certainly aim for. The lady that I told you had an appalling life of abuse. She actually said, what changed? And she said, someone held um, out a hand to me to help me, and that's what I want want to be with Tilly. You know, this was a greater hand, you know, of goodness. But Tilly is holding out the hand to women to say, Come to Tilly. We're going to teach you how to be independent and on so, a financial level.
0: And so how does someone get to Tilly?
4: Easy. You just go to tillymoney.com.au. You get a free subscription. You'll get articles every day on the website, a newsletter on that goes out to you on Thursday. That's the first stage of Tilly. And then after that, we're developing two new sides to the platform. And I'm going to tell you about that the next time we meet.
0: Okay. So if you're a bloke and you don't think Tilly's for you, I bet you've got a, a woman in your life who you really love. Make sure she goes to tillymoney.com.au.
4: I agree, but blokes are welcome too.
0: <laughs> and that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. I've got to say, Malcolm McHarris, he's a very bold predictor and he's got a pretty good strike rate. Doesn't always to get it right. I think a lot of people wouldn't have got Donald Trump um, right uh, in the last US election. But certainly Malcolm McKerris has uh, been doing it for a long time and has a pretty good track record. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week.